All right, we're going to grab a seat. So this is the adult class going through the Heidelberg Catechism, that, that great summary of the Christian faith. And looking forward to going through it with you over the course of the school year. And uh, Isaac, would you run back there and close the kitchen door? All right, getting all settled in. Everybody's getting right where they want and in their favorite spot. T's back there behind the... That's what I used to do in college, was find the spot where the professor couldn't see me. <laughs> uh, Dr. Godfrey said, don't ever bother doing that when you come to my class. He said, uh, I don't require you to be here. He said, in fact, my dream is that I would come to class one day, none of you would be here, and I could go back to my study. <laughs> But his lectures were fantastic, and he, he had so much fun in the, in the class with us. Okay, so we are looking at the Heidelberg Catechism. If you don't have a copy, your own copy of the Catechism, we definitely want you to get one of those. Um, you, we provide these. I don't know whose this is. I'm going to touch it. We provide these for free. And so it has the, the creeds, the ecumenical creeds. Uh, the the uh, Apostles, Nicene, and Athanasian. I think we also included the Chalcedonian definition in here as well. Yep. And then the three forms of unity, the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, and Canons of Dort. So these are our doctrinal standards, not just for our church, but for all the United Reformed Churches in North America and for all the Reformed Churches, uh, most Reformed Churches throughout the world today. Uh, it's, the Catechism is 450 years old and has been... Um, one of the standards for Reformed churches uh, since the 16th century. Gave a little bit of an uh, introduction on the Catechism last week, and since we're posting these on our website, uh, I'll try not to repeat too much information, so you can go back and listen to the brief introduction. Uh, but I will try to weave in uh, some, uh, quite a bit of history and background uh, from uh, the 16th century and, and why things were being confessed as they were at that time and why it's still helpful for us today. And uh, the structure, I'll, just, I'll review that very briefly because today we're going to go over Lord's Day 1. And uh, the structure, as we talked about before, is the three G's. What are those? Guilt, grace, Gratitude, helpful for remembering. Uh, you could also say sin, salvation, service. But uh, I prefer guilt, grace, gratitude. So questions 3 through 11 deal with our guilt, which is shown to us by God's law. Questions 12 through 85 show how we are rescued from the wrath of God that our guilt uh, uh, brings upon us. Uh, we're rescued by God's grace through Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law for us. And then in this section, we also confess the Apostles' Creed. We go through that creed and exposit it. That's one of the beauties of the uh, Heidelberg Catechism is it exposits the Apostles' Creed and roots it's material in the ancient church. Um, if you're keeping score, the Westminster Shorter Catechism does not do that. 
It does not, it does not have an exposition of the Apostles' Creed, and it, it kind of cuts itself off from uh, the ancient church in that way. Very important that we see our roots are in the ancient church and, uh, and, and, and go throughout history. We, we never want to have the impression that uh, we, should never, we shouldn't adopt the idea that uh, the church basically didn't exist between the time of the apostles and Martin Luther. Um, there, is, there, is, there are Christians throughout the age. There are just... Uh, doctrines that get developed more from Scripture as new false teachings arise and the church has to respond. And so we'll, we'll get into that more as we go throughout the year, but that's one of the reasons why you have creeds at the, in the very first few centuries after the apostles, and very important for every Christian church to confess those creeds, but then also to know what they mean, which is what this section does. And then finally, gratitude, which is questions 86 through 129, how we are now to live as those who are in Christ. So it's grace. By, by, by grace we're saved, and by grace we live. Uh, but how do we live? That's shown in the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments, which is in the gratitude section. And so very similar to Romans. Romans has this section, chapters 1 through 3, and then grace, chapters 3 through 11, and then gratitude, chapters 12 through 16. Uh, but before all this, you have the introduction, which is questions one and two. And so let's turn to that now. And uh, so we are all saying the same thing. Uh, would you turn with me in the Psalter hymnal to the back of the Psalter hymnal? So we're saying the same version. Uh, unless you have a copy of this version. I have a copy here in my hand. And let's say together the answer to this question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Let's say it together. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. And what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Okay, so uh, looking there first at question two, notice how it gives us the structure of the whole catechism, guilt, grace, gratitude. So what do you need to know to live and die in the joy and comfort of the gospel? Well, the greatness of my sin and misery, guilt, uh, without knowing why I need to be saved, the good news isn't that good. 
you know, it, then it sounds like, hey, you should try my way of religion. Um, we first need to hear the law, because the law shows us God's righteousness and holiness and how we haven't kept it. Because one of our fundamental problems is that we think we're not that bad. We think we're decent people. You know, we're not, we haven't murdered anybody, probably. Um, you know, we're not in jail. You know, we're not like a bunch of bad people out there. And we have, we have a tendency to suppress the truth and to think that we are more righteous than we really are. The law shows us uh, how much we have failed. The law says, do this and you shall live. And it was what Adam was uh, given in the beginning. And he failed, and we have all failed since. So we first need to see the greatness of our sin and misery. Okay. Then second, how I am set free from my sins and misery by God's grace uh, given to us only in Jesus Christ. Not something that we work our way out of. Uh, it's not a 12-step program. It's not, uh, you know, improve a little bit, and then you'll get out of your sins and misery. Uh, no, it's Jesus Christ who came in the fullness of time in real human flesh and has done for us that which we could not do for ourselves. And then how we are to thank God for such deliverance, gratitude. Those three things, so important that we understand them. Because now we live, according, we seek to live according to God's word. We seek to prioritize our lives, order our lives according to what God wants, and we delight in that. We, we desire to do that. However, we're not doing that. We're not doing good works in order to be loved by God. We are already loved by God as much as we ever possibly could be through Jesus Christ. We now seek to do good works in response to God's love. We love him, as John says, because he first loved us. And so a life of gratitude is the natural consequence of someone who has faith in Jesus Christ and has been saved by God's grace. And this, is, this was an incredibly important distinction to strike in the 16th century uh, as all the debates about how we are made right with God were raging in the church. Uh, you know, the, the doctrine of justification, how, how God declares us righteous uh, and accepts us uh, only for the sake of Christ's merits, which have been freely given to us, imputed to us, and received by faith alone. Um, that doctrine uh, was really the, the big uh, teaching under, in, in conversation and in debate in the 16th century. Uh, that's really what it means to be uh, a protestant is to protest uh, the, uh, not only the authority of the Pope over the Bible, uh, but also uh, what had become uh, a confused teaching about how we are made right with God. And so understanding these distinctions are important, not just because, well, once upon a time there was a great debate, but even in your own life. Think about how if you don't have this structure clear in your mind, we, we naturally revert back to law. We naturally revert back to trying hard to be acceptable before God. I mean, that's the normal human response, because we were hardwired for law from the beginning, uh, before the, uh, the fall. Uh, God made us to love him and to love neighbor. 
And so uh, law is something we understand. And law says, do all this perfectly and you get what you deserve. Uh, answer all the questions correctly and you get an A. Uh, you know, hit the ball well and you get on base. Um, do, work, do well at, at work and you get a promotion. That's law. And we get that. It's normal. Uh, but when it comes to being right before God, the problem is we can never achieve it. But we have a natural tendency to revert back to that. And so if we don't feel loved by God, or we feel distant by God, or distant to God, or something goes wrong in our life, um, we often assume it's because God doesn't love us, or uh, we've done something to offend him, and, uh, and maybe he doesn't accept us anymore. Uh, rather than understanding the, and, and having the joy that God accepts me as much as he ever will right now. God accepts me as much now as he will in heaven and ever possibly could because he's given to me what Jesus Christ earned. And so I can't be thrown out of heaven any more than Jesus Christ can be thrown out of heaven because it's his righteousness that's been given to me. And so when I understand that and how it's rescued me from my guilt, the sins and misery that I have, and the judgment I deserve, now I, the natural response is to live in gratitude. But it has to be in that order, guilt, grace, gratitude. Otherwise, we completely mess up the Christian life. And the sad thing is that there's, there's so many so-called Christian churches today that aren't, that aren't preaching this. And this isn't novel. This is just, this is just uh, um, garden-variety Protestant doctrine. But we have veered so far away from, from our roots. The modern American evangelical church is, is so far gone from where its roots once were that we don't even hear a message of this, let alone the creeds or confessions or uh, worship God in the way that uh, the historic Christian church has worshipped him. And, and so we live in times that are very similar to the, the medieval times, to the, to the Dark Ages, at least theologically. And in some ways, it's even worse. Uh, we can talk about that more with the rise of modernity and post-modernity and everything else, uh, so that this message becomes something almost new to many of us. Uh, we hear it, and uh, for many of us who didn't grow up on the, the Heidelberg Catechism or on law, a steady diet of long gospel preaching, we hear this, and it's like, wow, I've, not, I've been a Christian for all these years, and I've never heard this explained so clearly. Um, and it's because uh, we, we've been given a bad diet of bad theology. And this is that we need a modern reformation in the church. And that shouldn't make us proud, that shouldn't make us look down on other people, um, but it should make us zealous for the truth and, uh, and, a, and desire to, to get this into the hands of other people as well. Uh, questions on this, just the structure of guilt, grace, gratitude. Okay, you all get it. Uh, well, let's talk real quick then about question one. Isn't question one great? What is your only comfort in life and in death? I mentioned last week how the Heidelberg intentionally begins on this pastoral note of comfort. And again, the, the Westminster begins in a beautiful way as well. Um, what, is your, what is the chief end of man? It, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
uh, you know, telling us about the purpose of life. It's so important. But what the, what the, one of the beauties of the Heidelberg is it begins with comfort. Comfort. We all need comfort in life, right? Life is full of pressures and discomforts, and we, we seek comfort on a day-to-day basis. I mean, just from the time you wake up, uh, in my house, if I wake up and there's no espresso, there's no comfort uh, in the morning. And uh, because I can only get espresso in one place in San Diego County that I know of, uh, I mean real espresso, I, I, I make comfort difficult on myself. And, uh, but you get the idea. We have all these things that we desire. Comfortable pillow, comfortable bed, comfortable clothes, comfort of, you know, comfort of, of insurance, uh, having health insurance, life insurance brings you some peace of mind, some comfort. Uh, having uh, you know, tires that the tread isn't too low on them brings you comfort. A car that runs brings you comfort. We go through life looking for all these comforts. But what is it ultimately that gives us comfort in both life and in death? I mean, as you're laying on your deathbed, um, you know, we'll probably be comforted physically at least you know, from hopefully some good drugs and from uh, good doctors and uh, you know, kept in some amount of comfort. But what is it ultimately that gives you comfort knowing that uh, you're, you're going to be okay on the other side. I mean, we all have to deal with this. We're all going to die. And in America, in our culture, especially in the 21st century, we try to remove death out of our conversation. Um, you know, people don't even say so-and-so died. They say he passed away. Which, by the way, you've heard me say this a million times. I'm going to say it again. Stop saying that. It's not a Christian thing to say. It was invented by Mary Baker Eddy, uh, uh, Mary Eddy Baker, the, uh, the uh, leader of the Christian scientists. Um, it's the idea that you just sort of float away. But you don't float away. You cease to exist in this world, and body and soul separate, which is the definition of death. Body goes into the ground, And if you're a believer, it will be raised again on the last day when Christ returns. And soul, who you are consciously, apart from your material being, immediately goes to be with Christ to await the completion of your salvation, which is the resurrection. Death is a horrific thing. It's the result of the curse. And in many ways, my job is to prepare you for that day, to prepare you for death. Not just to get through the week a little happier. You know, you can find a motivational speaker to do that. But the gospel is going to prepare you for that thing that nothing else is ultimately going to bring you comfort in, this, in life and in death. Not in that way. And so we start off with this question. And in the 16th century, it was more vivid with such a, a high infant mortality rate. You know, people didn't live that long. You live to your 50s and 60s, maybe. Um, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Notice how it begins that I am not my own. Now that's huge. That I am not my own. Because everything in us screams the opposite. I'm my own, right? I get to make my own decisions. I rule myself. I'm autonomous. Nobody can tell me what to do or what to choose. I get to choose for myself what is right, what is wrong. I get to identify 
in any way I want. If I want to, if I want to say that I'm a, of a different race, I can make that up. If I want to say I'm a different gender, I can make that up. If I want to uh, choose what or who I want to marry or not marry or live with, I get to make all that. I get to make up my own rules as I go because I am my own. But the first catechism question is, you are not your own. Now, where do we get that from Scripture? Or is this just some extra-biblical, reformed, Calvinistic doctrine that uh, is opposed to Scripture? Everything in the Heidelberg Catechism is rooted in Scripture. If you can show me one thing that's not in Scripture, I'll, I'll cross it out and I won't confess it. I've been waiting 20 years to find one of those things. haven't found one yet. Every single line in the Heidelberg Catechism is just a summary of Scripture. Now, where do we find that, that I am not my own? That's good. You looked at the footnote. That was good. And, uh, and that's good. That's good you looked at the footnote. Uh, but that's only one place, of course. We don't list all the, all the things. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses, 16, or verses 19 and 20. Would somebody read that? Now that's important for us to remember, guys, that we, we belong to the Lord, and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that should also help guide a lot of your own decisions. Uh, it, it shouldn't make you uh, legalistic and say, well, you know, I don't think, since my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, maybe that's not a good idea you know, for Christians to do X, Y, or Z. Um, you know, smoke, or get tattoos, or uh, eat sugar. Got to throw that in there, because the people always say, Christians shouldn't smoke. I say, what about sugar? That's destroying your body just as much. Because uh, we can all turn into legalists. If, in other words, if you want that for yourself, fine. But you can't find a Bible verse that says, do not use any tobacco product, or do not use any sugar or not even do not make uh, tattoos on your body. Someone's going to say, well, doesn't Leviticus say making marks on your body? Yeah, that was under the Mosaic law because there were Canaanites who made marks on their body. And if you read the next verse, it says you can't cut the sides of your hair either. So until you come back with a big old mullet, let's not even uh, talk about that. Uh, so in the New Covenant, you can't find a verse uh, that restricts those things from believers. Now you might say for yourself, well, I don't want to do those things. That's fine between you and the Lord. But don't bind other people to your conscience. Nevertheless, this is the point I want to make. You are not your own. You're not your own. You belong to the Lord. And this is a source of comfort, not despair. That on my deathbed, my decisions aren't what saved me. But the fact that I'm a possession of Jesus Christ, that I belong to the Lord Jesus who paid for me on the cross 2,000 years ago. And that means in this life, I belong to Him. My body belongs to Him. My soul belongs to Him. My money belongs to Him. My kids belong to Him. They're all His. It's all His. I'm just a steward of the things He has entrusted to me. But that should bring us incredible, unspeakable comfort as we think about approaching death. I'm not my own. 
but I belong body and soul. Man is made up of both body and soul. Your body is who you are physically. Your soul is who you are immaterially. The body is not a prison house of the soul, as uh, Plato said. Uh, you are both body and soul. And in, in the resurrection, body and soul will come back together. And so your, your, your salvation is not complete when you die and soul goes to be with Christ. It's complete when soul is brought back with Christ and, raised, and body is raised and you are made like unto Jesus Christ. And we live on this world forever. Uh, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15. And so I belong body and soul. And notice, in life and in death, Jesus owns me not only in life, but also in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let's think about this. You know, we have a dear sister, uh, Dora, who is uh, at the end of her life. She has fought uh, lung cancer for several years, had strokes. Um, her health has declined in recent weeks, and the doctors have given her only, you know, a couple weeks to live, and she can't even get out of bed. Many of us know her. She's only in her 50s, and uh, it's going to be hard. What, now, here's my question. What would you bring to her to comfort her? What news could you bring her to comfort her? That she's owned body and soul in life and in death to Jesus Christ. Everything else doesn't really help. That's really the only news that's going to help. Sure, you might make her a, you know, a cup of tea or something. That's nice. That is nice. But it doesn't, it doesn't comfort you in death. The news that I belong to Jesus is what comforts me in death. But that means you belong to him right now. Your body, your soul, all of you, all your decisions should be made as one who belongs to Jesus Christ. That means living for his glory. And then he, the catechism expands a little bit on what Jesus has done to make us his possession. He has paid, not just paid, fully paid for my sins, not just my sins, all my sins with his precious blood. So everything I've ever done against God, all the law-breaking I've committed, everything I've left undone that He requires of me, it all stands against me on the day of judgment. All those things are, are indictments against me. They must be paid for because God is a just God. Everything I've ever thought or said that is a deviation from God's law it is damnable and can get me condemned and will stand against me on the day of judgment unless I have someone who has paid that debt in my place. And that is Jesus. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And so the Catechism is going to expand on that in depth, what that means as it goes through Scripture. And that's the good news, right? That Christ has come, who's lived the righteous life that we have not, and then goes to the cross as a 
pure sacrifice as the righteous one to be our substitute. And, he, and the wrath of God is laid upon him as our sins were imputed to him, credited to him. So just as Adam's guilt was imputed to the whole human race, and so we are conceived and born in guilt, and then we incur our own guilt from our own sin as well, well, all of that is laid upon Jesus. Jesus came to bring all of the sins of the people for whom he came to save on himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we may become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And the debt is canceled so that nothing can stand against me. And we need to remember that as we go through this life and we find ourselves uh, feeling guilt uh, that we, we are saved by God's grace, which now leads us into a life of true gratitude. So when we confess our sins to God and seek to turn from them, we have to do so in the power of knowing that we are saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And to say, well, I just don't know if God forgives me, is to diminish the work of the cross. It's to, it's to look at what Jesus did as being not as much. Well, he didn't fully pay for all my sins, but no, in fact, that's what Scripture says. And so this is summarizing it here for us. And he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Just as God set Israel free from the tyranny of Pharaoh, well, God has rescued us from being uh, under the tyranny of the devil. And so Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 13 he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You no longer belong to the, the domain of darkness. Satan has no tyranny over you. He acts like a tyrant and tries to accuse you, but he can't because all of your debt, all of your crimes, the list of offenses against you, it's all been canceled. It's all been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, and then it goes on. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. So not only do I have the forgiveness of sins, and I'm not under the tyranny of the devil, and I belong to Jesus in life and in death, but whatever happens to me in this life, it comes to me through the love of the Father and by his providence, which the Catechism will go on to explain more later. This is all good news. And because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life. That's what he does every time we come to church and the gospel's preached and we come to the supper. There's Christ again, by His Spirit, assuring you of eternal life. Saying, take, eat, this is for you. Put it in your mouth. As surely as you eat this bread and drink this wine, Christ gave Himself for you. That's why we should come to the supper every week. I don't know where this whole monthly thing ever arose from. Well, actually, I do. It came from Zwingli and uh, the idea of, uh, of, you know, if you have it too often, it won't be special. Um, Give me special. Give me more. Right? Give me more. I mean, maybe we should just only preach once a month, if that's the case. And, uh, but Christ is there assuring us of eternal life. 
That's why I can't, come, I can't wait to come to church tonight to hear the word and to receive the supper. He assures me of eternal life. And he makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live to him. Now, how do we reconcile that with our, you know, sometimes hearts that don't feel so heart, you know, willing and ready from now on to live unto him? Well, what it's talking about is a new category that, uh, that you live in. And it's, you, are, you are taken out of the category of being in Adam. And you are now in Christ. And Paul also calls that being in the Spirit rather than in the flesh. And so there are two categories. All human beings are in. You once were in Adam. As Paul says, he is the, the federal representative of the whole human race. He goes on in Romans 5 to talk about that. You know, through one man's disobedience, condemnation and death came upon the whole human race. But through faith in Christ, you are transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. In Adam, you have sin condemnation, death. This is just Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. In Christ, you have righteousness. Justification. And glorified life. And you are taken from one category to the other. This is why Paul is constantly saying, in Christ. He says it something like 164 times in his 13 letters. So you're in a new category. But Paul also develops that in Romans. Another way of saying it is, in the flesh, or in the spirit. And that's what he's getting at in Romans 8. He says, therefore, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, okay, in Adam, in sin, in righteousness, set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, listen, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So you've been moved from one category to another. This category is you are hostile to God. And you have, you, you, I am my own. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. But when the Holy Spirit, by the power of the gospel, 
works true faith in our hearts and unites us with Jesus Christ, and then we are clothed in His righteousness, we are justified by God, we are given the promise of glorified life, we now have these new desires that we did not have when we were dead in Adam. That's why we're here in church today. That's why we're sitting through catechism lesson. Because we desire the Word of God. That's what binds us together as a people of God. Uh, that's, you know, we, we, we love the Lord. We are a new man, a new creation. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Now, we still struggle with the pollution. There's still the remnants of this junk that clings to us in this life. And that will all be taken away, thankfully, at death. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we have a heart that is unwilling now to serve the Lord. And here's the, here's the, the evidence of it, is repentance. You see, it's impossible for a Christian to refuse to repent. And that's the only thing that will get a Christian excommunicated out of the church. Is if a Christian says, I refuse to repent. Because when a Christian says, I refuse to repent, I'm going to do this, this is what I want, I don't care what you say, well then they are, they are showing then by their actions that they actually don't have true faith. So the Christian isn't somebody who never fails or never sins, of course he does. He, he, he is simultaneously sinful and righteous. Simul justus et peccators, as Luther said. However, he will always, by the power of the Spirit, be brought back again to repentance. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 7, the struggle. But, and that's ultimately what the catechism is getting at when it says, makes me wholeheartedly. The Spirit is the one who makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live unto Him. That's what the Spirit does. We desire to live for Him. Not, not just as a little part of our life, but to be recognized as a Christian, to be baptized into His church, to profess faith in Him, and to live my life openly as a believer in Jesus Christ and His disciple. Yeah, there will be a struggle inwardly, but the Spirit is the one who continually is making us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live unto Him. Questions on the, on, uh, on the introduction to the catechism? Yeah. Right. Well, we're all God's creatures. We all belong, we, we, we are all his, uh, his creatures, and he's the creator. And he, we owe him our allegiance, worship, and obedience. However, that doesn't mean that we are all his children. Because um, we are only children by adoption. And this is what Paul's getting at. I mean, over and over again, he gets, he gets at this about um, a, the doctrine of adoption. Uh, if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 is helpful. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, this is a, someone who doesn't have the spirit, making them wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, here comes, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
I, I, this is the one I always bring up when I, I, somebody says, well, we're all God's children. I'm like, well, not really. Here, let me, let me show you what uh, Paul says, children of wrath. Jesus is even more blunt. He says, you're children of the devil. So the idea that, well, we're all, because the idea that, well, we're all God's children is, in the end, it's all going to be good. Love wins. And we love that stuff, right? Well, love does win. Love rose again from the dead. Love was seen in his resurrected body by the, uh, the apostles and was testified by many eyewitnesses. And love is extended to you. And embrace love. Don't reject love. And you too will be a child of God. But people want to be a child of God while rejecting God's love is ultimately what they, what they want to do. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Yeah, and then he, says, he goes on, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him seated, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he just keeps going on and on and on, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice how that verb walk is in, at the beginning of chapter 2 and verse 2. You once walked in the deadness of your trespasses and sins. See? In Adam. In the flesh. Now Christ comes, makes you alive, and then what does he say in, in, in verse 10? Uh, you are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Uh, you're not saved by good works. You're saved by Christ's good works. But he has saved you for good works, a life of gratitude, so that you should walk in it. So you used to walk this way. Now you begin walking this way. And then Paul picks up on that verb walk, and he uses it all throughout the rest of the book of Ephesians. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Uh, walk, do not walk as the pagans do in the futility of their minds. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up. Walk as children of light. Uh, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Because we now live this life of gratitude. So it's guilt in Adam. Grace, who saved us, Christ, brings us over here. And now we live a life of gratitude in him. Other questions? All right, simple enough. Very good. What? It is simple. Huh? It is simple. Well, uh, here then, we got, we got two minutes. Turn over to the next question. You can see how the Heidelberg Catechism is divided into 52 Lord's Days, Sundays. Um, and that's really how we should view Sunday. Again, you're not your own. You belong to Christ. And then he summons his people on the Lord's Day. We should look at it as the Lord's Day. Not just, eh, I'm going to go to church if I'm home this weekend. Uh, rather, the Lord's Day is really how we should organize our whole week around the Lord's Day. 
It's a holiday that God gives us where he summons his people. We, we kind of withdraw from the culture, and we come together as the kingdom of God. And so uh, the Heidelberg Catechism is divided into these 52 Lord's Days. The next one begins to go into the, the, uh, the guilt section. And we'll, we'll pick up here next week, but we can just start by looking at this. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What, is the law, what does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That is not good news. That is not good news. You don't want to, con- you don't want to confuse the law with the gospel. It is not, it's good, it's good, but it's not good news to you. Hey, I got some news for you. I got some news for you. Yeah, what's the news? It's good news. Oh, good. I'm always happy to get good news. My wife says, hey, I got some good news. <gasps> what? What? Because, you know, you're tired of bad news, right? Good news is not, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Do that, and you shall live. That's bad news because we're sinners. The good news is that someone has done it for us. And so we, w- we want to be clear on the difference between the law and the gospel, which in many ways is what the Reformation was all about. Okay, let's stop there, and uh, let's give thanks to the Lord. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us through Jesus Christ, your Son, who has paid for all our sins fully, And now we belong to him in body and soul and life and death. Thank you for transferring us from the tyranny of the devil and being in Adam and in the flesh to being in Christ and in the Spirit who now leads us in a life of gratitude. Bless us, Lord, as we continue to grow in our understanding of the Christian faith that you have delivered once for all to all the saints. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.